my self-worth is not and should never be, none of you, you are listening to that, is kind of defined by the success you have, defined by the money in the bank, doesn't define by the relationship you have or do not have. Be authentic. Go off the beaten path. Define what success looks like for you. That all sounds awesome sauce, doesn't it? But what does working and living on your own terms actually look like in practice? The Leading Rebels podcast is here to offer some answers. Every two weeks, you'll hear inspiring interviews with badass women walking the talk and my own actionable advice to help you find, own, and tell your story. I'm your host, Catherine Dell, a storyteller, founder, and book nerd that's passionate about amplifying women's voices. Now let's dive into today's episode so you can become a leading rebel in your life. Hey there, Rebel. Welcome to this episode of the Leading Rebels podcast. I'm super excited to introduce you to Barbara Lampel. Barbara is larger than life, how I would describe her. And she's a big fan of tough love. I got to meet her in person at Web Summit last year. And you could hear it and feel and see her a mile away. And she has a very infectious presence and energy. And she's also somebody who's you know, found her own way in life and kind of now really embraced where she is and who she is and how she does things. But of course, it's always a journey getting there, which is why I'm really excited about our conversation so she can share a little bit of how she got to where she's today. So welcome, Barbara. Thank you very much. And now I'm blushing larger than life. Okay, thank you. That's a benchmark to go for. <laughs> hey, you know, we don't, we don't uh, say for the compliments here if they're true. No, and that's no. the fact. So Barbara, do you maybe want to just catch up people a little bit on your general journey and where you are now? And then we'll kind of dive in into what the big moments were that got you here. Okay. So I'm born and raised in Munich with some international stuff already while school. So one year in Boston and stuff like that. Then after school, the journey started off mainly to University of Zurich where I studied math, finance, and psychology, went while that already into asset management and finance, um, then worked my fair share there. And back in 2007, I founded my first um, own company, which was a Swiss independent asset manager. And from there on, many companies followed, some good ones, some bad ones, some still existing, some were sold. And today I'm mainly focused on my business, which is um, empathic business, surrounded by some lecturing, some other more data stuff and anything. And that's mainly the shortcut of my professional life. (laughs) Which is already plenty. And there's a lot for us to dive into. What were kind of like the three big changes or things that you did that got you here? I hear out a lot of things. For example, one thing that definitely caught my attention is when you say you studied both math and psychology. That's usually not something people combine. So I have a feeling there might be something there. (laughs) Yeah. To be honest, when I was like ending school, you're like in that position, what the hell now doing, what study it should be. And I got the very good advice from my beloved history teacher. And she said, you start with what you're sure about you do not want to do. So the list got shorter. And then in the end, it was kind of, I was always fascinating with everything, machines and technical stuff. On the other hand, surrounding numbers and math had a big kind of thing. I always find it fascinating because it's so structured. 
instructor kind of helped me. And then that's kind of, I studied starting out in the University of Constance with finance or combination of math and finance, but it was a never start a study um, at a lecture, which is a first tryout. We were the first kind of tryout and it was awful. So I left there on the basis understanding if you want to study math, you really have to understand math. So I studied that. And of course, still into that finance is very interesting. So I went into finance, of course, that's where we started out. And then you know, like, okay, now I can explain the world. Because like in finance, every mathematical model, because it's a model, we can explain the world. The only thing, it doesn't match the world. Because these freaky things called humans don't behave like these finance models. And that's kind of how I started out in psychology. And also because I'm, I was always fascinated by humans and always had kind of the feeling, kind of weirdly thinking, I'm not really human. And I want to understand um, not really the motivation of humans, more like the behavior I want to understand. And that's how I ended up with math and not only psychology, because I don't study the classical, like 90% of psychology students do. They go into the motivational side. I got into what then became what we now call behavioral finance, behavioral econometrics, or the economies, neuroscience stuff. I got down deep into behavioral stuff. So that was literally a turning point combined with anything else. I think another big turning point for sure was founding my first real proper company, which of course you have to be an independent asset manager. It's like the classical stuff to do, of course not. And the third thing, um, and that was later after founding my first company, was like that um, I finally got an external explanation while I always thought humans were kind of weird and not like me. Because after my 30th birthday, it was quite obvious that I am, have at least a different brain because I'm on the autistic spectrum. So I would say that kind of are my three big turning points, how my journey went. So I'd love to kind of, you mentioned, you know, first of all, you studied in one place, then you kind of switched place where you were studying, and then you also kind of added majors, and as a, you kind of, in the end, studied something that didn't exist in that form yet, and, and now does. How did, you know, your parents, uh, the people around you react to your kind of, I guess, non-linear journey, where it's very classical here that you decide to study something, and you go, and then you study it, and you know, then you do the next thing, basically. And you kind of switched that up already when you were younger. How did that go over? And how did you kind of have the certainty that that was the right thing for you? I think the funny thing is my parents were not irritated at all. <laughs> Literally not at all. Because from the day on, like there are so many stories my parents told over the years from stuff where I decided, no, that's wrong for me. I go in the totally different direction. <laughs> so that was a thing I did early on as a child. And I had a really, my parents always embraced that. It was always, if I had made my decision, the one sentence was always, it's your decision. You have to live with the consequences. So either that consequences is to be work really hard, like to get somewhere in that kind of field, or if you now screw it up, you also have to live with that decision. But my parents always encouraged my decision-making and also under, always understood I have a very stubborn mind. And funnily, my parents understood that my mind kind of works differently and that I'm not very good, especially as a child and even back at my early 20s, wasn't the best in arguing my point. So my parents had kind of a very good feeling that they had a feeling for when was my decision-making process kind of proper, that I in my world have thought everything through. So that was kind of okay. 
so with my parents. But the other world, of course, I think the rest of the world literally thinks I'm a weird nutcase still today. But the most difficult part in my early childhood and teens, it wasn't that I really did give a shit. So it was literally I didn't care. While studying, it got really, really harder because I was recognizing what society expected of me, like that linearity and that like you have to live your potential and you have to focus just on math because you're good at math and stuff like that. That really didn't make me very well. It broke my back, literally broke my back. So that's not a figurative speech. I had to have a back surgery when I was 30. So that didn't sit well, but on the other hand, it never stopped me. And then afterwards I learned, I came back to kind of my childhood I don't care what you think. I really don't care. Enjoy your life. I enjoy mine. So the journey I had that period of time where literally broke myself down, but I kind of stick to it. I'm very stubborn to knowing what it's good for me. And if I know that's what I want, I even don't self-sabotage myself that highly that I don't get there. It just probably takes a little bit longer. No, absolutely. And what is what kind of helped you during that time when you were in, I'm going to say quotation marks, trying to figure it out? When you were saying, okay, I'm getting that the message that what people think I should do and what is expected of me is not what I want to do. And I'm still going to go through with what I want to do. But of course, at that moment, you were still in the mindset of, I do still care about the reaction yeah. and so on. What kind of helped you to transition back to that more childlike you know, attitude of like, this is my life and I don't care and I will do it my way? First of all, I think back going home and going back to my parents because it was always a safe place. I think I'm worried. I was very blessed with parents. They helped, they, they built up an environment where it, I was always okay to deep down to my core. And that coming back home and also listening to all the struggles my parents had and listening to the struggles, especially also my mom had, and also that spirit, especially my dad always gave me, it's don't care about it. We are what we are and you have to be your really self, live that. So that helped very much. On the other hand, also happened that I think that's one of the things I always had and very grateful for because it was my dad and also my boyfriend at that time. I always had these male figures who supported me on another level. I had great girlfriends and anything, but they were kind of stuck in the same thing. They stuck in the same rut. But these male figures, and also I had like the very blessed to have very great mentors, especially back when I started out in, in finance, these male figures, sometimes really old figures. So my real first boss was when I started working with him already 82. But he gave me that kind of from a very long lived life perspective, don't care. And that helped me coming back. And also kind of um, trying to figure out female role models weren't that big in that time. And still, we all know we're kind of short on that, but kind of have that feeling, at least have one safe place where you can be you and it's celebrated, not bashed. So that I think helped the most in that kind of time. I agree that it's so important to have people around you that kind of say, hey, I've been through this and uh, believe me when I say it truly doesn't matter. (laughs) You know. So what I also, something you said that I found super interesting was that one of the reasons you kind of could go your own way in that sense, um, what your parents instilled in you is that you then figure out and, you know, still figure out how to be successful in the, in the path that you do choose. Mm -hmm. And as you've mentioned, you found a lot of companies by now, a lot of uh, enterprises, and (laughs) some of them have been successful and some of them haven't. 
So how did you deal with the failure side of those? Because you know, you decide to do your own thing, you're confident in that, and then it doesn't work out. How did how did that go over, especially the first time? I think the, the one thing is, I think that's one thing. If you study math, you learn to fail. Believe me, math is one of these topics you study. You're sitting on a white paper. You're sitting in front of a paper. You have a line where you said you should prove that thing. And you're sitting there literally for hours and hours and don't get a clue. You don't get a hang on it. You put in so much work and your brain does not compute the way it should. And that proof does not, it's not getting on your paper. So I think one thing is I really, I learned early on while studying math, that failure is not some, something which is not happening. It's happening constantly to you. So that's one thing. The other thing I was always did worry, I was sorry, um, sports uh, as a child and, and still in my youth and on a very high competitive level. So either with dancing or with gymnastics. And there is that training aspect where you have to fail or you have to figure out stuff and you will, in gymnastics, you will fall on your nose, but you have to do it again and again. And that's, you're doing that on a conscious level, not as a child where you kind of learn to run, but it's not conscious that you get up again and again. These things combine together with kind of a real deep inner work to think the most important thing is that I got to one point where I really was on that abstract level that even that if it's my complete own fault that I didn't succeed, it doesn't corrupt me on my own self-worth. It doesn't have to be my self-worth is not and should never be, none of you who are listening to that, is kind of defined by the success you have, defined by the money in the bank, it doesn't define by the relationship you have or do not have. But come to that level to understand that you make mistakes on a constant level, but it's not saying something about your own self-worth. It's not saying something about your own style of life. It's just that. It's a failure. You get up again and do it the next time better round. And I'm a big person on have a review. What was my part in it? And some of these mistakes weren't... Uh, my part was really little in it, but I own my own shit. So that's kind of where I go. And on the other hand, I don't get that in my way of um, corrupting my own self-worth because that what happened in that period between my early 20s and my, my third, uh, ending kind of with my 30th birthday, I did that. I corrupted my own self-worth or I let it corrupt it. I let it get to me. And then when I was getting out of that and embraced my failures and my mistakes and my real, I, I screwed up one of my companies. I burned half a million of my own money. That's not, that's not less money. To see, yeah, that's what happened. But it's not, my self-worth should not be crushing under that. I think that's so a strong statement to have because I feel like we identify with things so much and especially as women as we're negotiating some new spaces. In the past, it used to be like, oh, we identify as, are we the perfect wife or are we the perfect mother or are these other descriptions of us? And now it's like, oh, we could also be, you know, perfect business. So is, is that how we're supposed to define ourselves? And I think having the distance of being able to separate who you are as a person from what you do or like what role you take in other people's lives or in other people's businesses or careers. That is so important to be able to overcome whatever challenges come in all of those areas as they always invariably do. And yeah. I also love that you mentioned kind of the importance of math for failure because I had to really think about it. I just recently read Brave Not Perfect about the founder of Girls Who Code. And she said one of mm -hmm. the reasons that she's a fan of Girls Who Code and she wanted to do that 
was because girls very often don't get taught failure. They get so protected and so taught to be perfect. And coding is like math. One of those things (laughs) you first have to create something that will not work. Like you just can't. And then you'd basically have to fix it. But the first part is always failing. And she said it was crazy because she would have the first workshops and a girl would be like, oh, I can't do this. I need help. And the teacher would come and there would be like a completely blank page. And they would be like, huh? But she's been sitting here for like an hour. And then they click like undo and they had created code. They had been working on it, but because it wasn't working, they would rather just completely delete it rather than be like, okay, I did create something, but it's you know not perfect. So it can't stand on its own. And I think that's so important that you said that that part, that's why STEM is also for, for girls and women so important. Yeah. And that's why it's also so hard because we're like, we connect our perfection, our roles, everything to our self-worth. And every time I think that's always, you can ask my employees, that's kind of the first lesson I'm always telling them. And they're all like, yeah, that's going to be not a big problem. And then down the road, they really had to have to embrace them embrace that mindset that I will say that is wrong, but it has nothing to do that you are wrong. It's just like that work is not good enough. We want something different, but it's never a statement about your person, about yourself. It's never that. And that's a really tough thing to learn. And that's the early on, the better you learn that to abstract, to be a distance about that your work can be bashed by someone and it can be even right to bash it. But it has nothing to do with your own self. And that's, a, that's the thing that most women cannot take. And that's really something which will get in your way in life very fast and very hard. I can definitely say that that's also been a very big learning journey for me, especially being somebody who was also very good in school. And then as soon as you leave school, there is like, you no, know, life doesn't have right answers. There is no like clear cut, this is the right thing to do. And if you do it this way, then you will be fine and rewarded for it. That's just not how life works in comparison to school. Damn it. Uh, I know. How, how dare it? How is it not yeah. more like ordered? So that's definitely also a big learning journey that I think all of us have. And what I found interesting when you just shared is also, how did you have the confidence or the thing, or maybe not the confidence, but the thought that you would still try it again? Because I would have thought if you're thinking about it, separating it from yourself, but thinking about logic, you're like, okay, I tried going on my own and that didn't work doesn't say anything about me, but maybe that's not my path in that sense, or like, that's not the right thing for me. How did you then have the, make the decision that you still wanted to continue to create businesses and that that's something that you do want to do for you, even if it maybe once or twice or however many times didn't work out? Honestly, it's a good thing. I never thought about that. That wasn't why I passed. Honestly, I didn't <laughs> never question that. Sometimes I get asked questions in interviews and I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. I never thought of that. No, that would have been a bad idea to have that thought. No, it was literally that that's the path. I do what I said. I did a review every time I fail, which is in a normal week, I think at least 60 times or so. Every time I look at it, what didn't work out? What can I do? What went wrong here? And then how many times it's like technical stuff. I work so much digital digital stuff. And then it's like, no, that does not work. That too does not work. That has nothing to do with me. And it's not distracting me. It's just annoying. And then I go on. And that's kind of every time I look at stuff, I'm never in that. I I love learning. Honestly, I love evolving. The worst part I ever tried was when I came up with the idea of one of my businesses, the business I'm actually sitting in at the moment, was like, oh, it's going well. Let's go. We stabilize that uh, our revenues and profits. That was the most dumb idea I ever had because it's totally not me. I'm a constant evolving person. And then trying to get your business kind of stabilizing profit, it, 
that went down the rabbit hole fast. So that's kind of, there is that thing where many people say you have like that growth mindset. I don't think that growth mindset is the real word. I think it's just like that I'm, I so want to see other people. I'm kind of nosy. I'm so interested in other stuff and other people. That standstill is not something I'm interested in. And as soon as you start kind of not embracing your own failures, not going on, you kind of question, is that my path? But my gut feeling, my intuition was always, no, that's the way to go. That's me. That's literally me. And then I would, and also I had that big thing, like kind of my own back breaking through my own self. And I also, I really, I really said to myself, I'll never do that again to me. I'm never doing that again to myself. I'm never going to short try for kill myself that way. Never I will do that again. I promised me that quite hardly. And I also kind of corrupted my own friends, like telling them, if you see I'm going down the rabbit hole and doing, going in the wrong direction, please correct me. Even if I will scream murder at you, but please correct me. And so that question never came up because down in my core, I always knew that, no, that's my way to go. That's my path. And whatever I throw myself and other people throw in my way, you have to grow with the obstacles. Let's go for it. The fastest way through hell is a straight line. That's always, if, I, if it's going tough, I'm always like, okay, I'm in hell. Just go through it fastest way is always a straight line. And how did you find that balance? Because what is super interesting is on the one side, you have like this love for math and, and modules and that's very ordered and scientific and you can see it and test it and there's proof for it. And on the other side, you're like, I trust my intuition. I know my gut what is right. My body also tells me things, as you said, you know, about what happened with your back. How do you kind of combine you know, you do that in your business with empathic business, which is, you know, for some people sounds like an oxymoron. How <laughs> did you find that you could combine those two things and trust both of them, even if one of them didn't have the factual proof that the other one did? I think, first of all, I started back when I was around, I think, 13. I had a love for tea because coffee wasn't my, f coffee today is my first love. I have it even as a tattoo on my arm. So, but then it was more tea. And I stumbled into a tea house in Munich, um, which wasn't a tea house. It was a Zen meditation Buddhist center. <laughs> so I stumbled in there and started Zen meditating and all that stuff back when I was around 13, 14 years old. And it was very fascinating. And I always, I worked quite a lot for, uh, for like church and I did children's groups and always that kind of way. So I would say I'm a very spiritual person, always and was, and even I'm just not religious because that is really not fun to rig it. And that's not my world, but I always kind of had that feeling. And even from a mathematical standpoint, math is it's, we're a helping scientific. So we're helping. We, if a physics come to us, we help you with a mathematical formulation. We're not developing stuff on our own. And even in physics, they came up, they come up with everything new and quantum physics try to explain stuff. And I'm always in that kind of field where I'm thinking just because people cannot explain it, but I'm experiencing it. And if I'm experienced on a constant level, why should I self shut myself down kind of and don't say it doesn't exist? And with intuition, it's kind of the same thing. For many years, I didn't understand it, of course. And then like when Kahneman came out with this Nobel Prize winning paper, where you'll kind of read about that kind of fast thinking, slow thinking, how intuition works based on the experience you have, what, a, what cognitive biases are. And then you're like suddenly sitting there and like thinking, okay, Kate, that explains my whole freaking world. I just wasn't aware of it. 
And that's kind of the thing where I'm always like, I love scientific stuff and I'm, I'm a constant sucker for reading papers. Um, normally I read around, I think at least eight hours a week, just like scientific papers, because I love that that much. But you always have to be open-minded. And in theory, you there is the idea that you start with an open mind, then you go into an open heart, and then you go into your open will. And that's about pre-sensing the future. And I think most people are always trying to and mathematicians always have been very spiritual, very interested persons because we're just helping other scientific fields to develop the mathematical base. So we always have to be very open and to be very, you have to have a sense for it. And that's not very a thing you can explain that hard. But over time, you some, someone has probably come up with an explanation. You're like, oh, that's working. And I think that the thing is, if you have kind of a, a good connection to your own core, and you have to learn to trust yourself because in the end, it's the only person you will spend your whole life with is your own self. And if you distrust yourself, if you sabotage yourself, you are literally bashing the one person you will always have in life. And that's a journey you have to go. And sometimes that sounds weird and sometimes that sounds spooky, but then find your tribe where you can speak about that, where you're not kind of the odd one out but the kind of normal one, even if that's not a compliment, but find your tribe where you're normal one, where you can explore these fields, whereas it's okay. And in other fields, you just say, yeah, that's interesting. And I'm going to do that next Friday again. And you think it's spooky, but I don't care. <laughs> and you also said something at the very beginning, which some people would have got hung up on. And it was a very strong statement that you said, like you, when you were younger, before your thirties, you felt sometimes like you don't feel human. And yeah. then you had this revelation after when you were already quite a bit older that you were on, on the autistic spectrum. And how did that change how you saw things and how you understood things when before you clearly felt one way and then you had some new information come in? How did you feel before? How did the transition feel? How is it today, basically? I think that's why I can trust myself and why I can kind of be open about that stuff. Because for like so many years, years is nice, decades, it was like, these people are different than me. Why? They look like me. They look like humans. And I'm a human too, but that's kind of weird. And I was always like, thankfully, because of my parents, I didn't bash myself totally. That was a good thing. But it was like always, I had to kind of have that feeling they are different. That went so far that as a child, I couldn't watch Superman because I had the feeling I'm the only one also. So I really was sitting down like Superman is not, I love Superman. I'm a lot big comic and geek and all that stuff. And so, but Superman was hard for me to watch. And while I was studying everything over the years and even studied psychology, I, I've kind of got a feeling, okay, there is something not wrong with me, but I'm different, but you should never self-diagnose yourself. It's not a good idea. And after finally getting the diagnostic, I'm being okay, thank you, you're welcome, you're an autist. I'm like, okay, that explains a hell lot. So it was like in the, if you look like back onto the 30 years or 31 years and you're like, oh, that explains that, that explains that. So it for, was for me kind of the label of my new tribe. And on the other hand, it immediately got for me just an explanation. But today it's much more like helping other people. First of all, see that you can be extremely successful and being autistic or being, I love to call it neurodiversity. So I, you have a depression or any kind of diagnostic, it's called, we call it neurodiversity. So we just have a little bit different brains than other people. And that's why we call it neurodiversity. And to helping other people also understand, because sometimes I, 
if you see me, I can be very loud, which normally can be because the surrounding is so loud and I didn't, don't hear anything anymore because I put on filter and filter and filter because it's even more noisy for me and stuff like that. So it's more like that autistic label is now for people to understand some of the stuff I do to make it easier sometimes to see why stuff sometimes seems so weird. And that's kind of more an explanation for the other people today. And also kind of being a neurodiversity role model to show up and see, even if someone labels you, because let's be honest, autistic means disabled. Even if a label would be called that, you will, I think one thing, you would never think of me as disabled. And that's kind of breaking with the stereotypes. And that's why I'm also very open about it, just to see don't come with me with that label because that's not going to end well for you. <laughs> We're all busy with a capital B nowadays. I know I am. But even if I'm running around between work, events, and meeting friends, I still don't want to miss out on yummy and healthy home-cooked meals. One thing I hate, though, deciding on what to cook and going food shopping. That is, I used to until I discovered HelloFresh. They deliver me weekly cook boxes with all the ingredients already portioned to make delicious meals. Problem solved. If you want to try them out and save some time to focus on the important things, I've got a coupon for you to get 20% off your first box. Just head to leadingrebels.com HelloFresh. Plus, by using my link, you'll also be inviting me to a meal. So thanks in advance. Again, that's leadingrebels.com HelloFresh. Now let's dive back into today's episode. So that's actually an interesting conversation because I feel like labels is also something that we generally struggle with because on the one side, you mentioned it in a positive connection in the sense of it makes you find people in your tribe and that makes you, you know, belong to a group, which can be a positive thing. And you also said, you know, it can help explain things to people and create more mutual understanding and have, you know, better conversations if you have that starting point. But on the flip side, as you mentioned, they can also be negative labels or limiting labels. So how do you negotiate that? How do you for yourself decide what are the labels? Do I want labels? Which are the ones I embrace? How far of an influence do I let them take in that sense? I think that the one thing I learned and which is definitely my autistic brain is helping. So I'm very thankful for my lovely brain on that side. Yes, I don't think in labels. That goes that far that I, I never don't even think in gender labels and stuff like that. My brain doesn't just think that way. I think that's a big difference or what I always try to encourage people. If you label something, please do it on a conscious level. Don't label me successful or label me, I don't know, whatever you want to label me just out of a reflex of your brain, label me with a conscious level. And with these labels, I'm quite fine because you will probably have a good reasoning to label something like that. On the other hand, I think labels are, first of all, you have to always have yourself check in with yourself because the labels from different people are the one thing. But the biggest problem you will have is the labels you give yourself. If you want, if you label yourself on a high level kind of wife or businesswoman, then you have to live up to a standard, which is probably not your standard because you use that label. So that's kind of the first thing you should always do. And that's why I don't like labels if they're not consciously chosen. Other labels I think are just mean, especially like calling someone disabled and stuff like that or, or sick or anything. I think these are labels that are so judgmental. And that's kind of where I draw the line in, in the sand is literally 
when the word in itself is just not a label, it's a poor judgment. And that's where I really, and that's why I'm getting angry because a label is just like, we have to speak to each other. We have to say, oh, call me on my phone. Just that's a label also. But as long as the label is either consciously chosen or doesn't have that judgment on a constant level, it's fine. But there is that border where labels go to judgment, either for ourselves or especially for other people's. Um, other people. And that's kind of really where you have to draw the line. As soon as you realize, and that can be in a sentence where you're like, it sounds like a label, but you kind of feel or how, how someone presents something that is just a true judgment. That's why I don't like religions. They're judgmental. And that's kind of where you should always for yourself and others draw the line. Because a label is something just like to get a conversation started, to just kind of um, talk about the same thing, but it's soon as it's getting judgmental, it's not a good thing anymore. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good strategy to kind of differentiate between the two. And then you also mentioned something interesting that reminded me that I wanted to ask you about, because mm -hmm. as you said, you don't think in labels, so you also don't think in gender in that sense, but you are a big supporter and promoter of women since I've experienced you and I know that. So <laughs> how does that for you, how, did, how do you make that connection of like, for you, it's not such a thing in quotation marks? Yeah, still uh, promoted and supported in, in, in the wider world. I think the funny thing is it took me quite some long time to realize the sentence, oh, I'm as a woman, most women really literally think as themselves as they pronounce the sentence as a woman. And that was really funny when I had that realization. I'm like, I don't even think about me like that. That one was interesting. So to make that a little bit clearer, when I think about myself, I think about I'm a you. I have the gender, which is totally, I never wanted to be, I never one day in my life wanted to be a boy. I always am. My gender is girl, woman, whatever you want to call it, but female. That's my gender. I'm totally stuck with it and I love it. But I don't have that inner voice where I think, label myself, when I think about myself or even about others as female, male, or any kind of different gender identifications you have. And on the other hand, I've of course experienced and now how I get, end up here. So you have a person, me, don't, of course, knowing I'm female, but don't have an inner representation as re like thinking yourself about female and now running into that world and having that problems that females shouldn't do that or get paid less. I'm like, and that's kind of where it all started. I'm like, that's, that's so unfair <laughs> and that's so not true. And that's kind of how I started all out. Yeah, that's how I went into all that gender. And I'm a very big promoter of that. I'm a big promoter of diversity, to be honest. I'm white, female, privileged with a neurodiversity brain, but you don't see that. So I'm also one of these people who have kind of everything. So I think it's an even more important job to promote diversity on every kind of level. And diversity should start with where we have 50-50 and get into equality and stuff like that. But basically it started out because I, I, of course I got all the backlash and all the reactions of having the female gender, even if I don't even think about myself on that. And that's kind of where it all started out. And I think that's a very logical journey. And I love actually the journey that you've had because it breaks it down to such simple terms of like, it's not, it's just not logically fair. Like regardless yeah. of how you think about it or like <laughs> how you feel or how you see it, if you just like look at it, you're like, I'm confused. <laughs> yeah, that was literally, when I, when I first realized like, that doesn't make, one of the sentences you would always hear, that doesn't make sense. 
And then people like looking at me, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Please explain it to me. And then they start like, yeah, then they start to throw stuff at you, which they realize it doesn't make sense. And like, and you're like, yeah, then why the hell are we doing it? Yeah. And on a basic logical level, it doesn't make any kind of sense. So yeah, that's kind of how everything normally started out. If I'm like encouraged and engaging in anything, it's like normally that doesn't make kind of sense. Can we do that differently? That's kind of one of the most starting points of my life. <laughs> Absolutely. I love our conversation so far. I think we've had some really great points. And there's two last things I like to wrap up with. One is, I know your life has changed when you started doing things in your own terms. I mean, alone physically, that transition from, as I mentioned, when you were in your 30s and you broke your back and then had to recover from that. How has your life changed in that sense? Like, how is that? Are you the person you are now that embraces who you are and how you do things, regardless of? preconceptions, other notions different from the person that uh, got to that point before? I think one of all it is, I never feel myself disconnected because like in that period of these 10 years between my twenties and my thirties, I always felt so often disconnected to myself. I always wasn't myself. And I always like, you have that constant feeling that's not my life. And that thought I never had again, it's always my life and it's always my good stuff and all my shitty stuff. It's always me embrace everything you do. I think that's one of the most turning points that change. And it's a sense of calmness. Most people, when they met me, they see me as that loud and encouraging person because yes, of course I am that. As soon as you start to understand more about me or learn to we spend some more time together, I'm that very centered, calm person. And my lovely lean in US and international colleagues always call me badass with a big heart. And because of course, I think the first thing is you see that badass and I'm totally that and I'm living and I'm trying to living that to the fullest. But on the other hand, it's that big heart energy. It also like being yourself opens up possibilities in your own life. Even on a business level, I would have never dreamed of even to empower and enable people, which wouldn't have been possible if I'm still my disconnected self. So even some business ventures in the last, just last month wouldn't have been possible if I'm still on my disconnected self. And I think that's a glowing recommendation for anybody <laughs> to start to <laughs> embrace who you really are. And for the listeners who how are there and you know they want to get there, maybe still on that journey. I think, to be honest, we're all still on that journey. I think that's a yeah. lifelong thing. Do you have some recommendation for resources, be it like books or podcasts or anything that, especially in, I mean, I know you're a huge reader, so I'm sure the list is going to be very long or other things that you did or that helped you along the way. Um, I think what I started out is I started with, it started with a cup of tea, interestingly. So it's a really Buddhistic sense story at that point. But coming back to like um, embracing stuff like that, going into meditation, try that out do something, either as a meditation or the more yoga stuff and anything else, do something which connects you with your kind of core, which calms you down, whatever that is. Get on Spotify or whatever tool and go, do a, kind of a meditation thing. There's so many free resources out there. Try it. Just try it. Just like to get a, because the first step is before you don't get calm with yourself, at least for like three to four minutes, you, the one thing you start with is you have to stop. And first of all is you have to stop yourself. Because if you're down and I'm not, I'm, it will happen again that I'm bashing my own self and try to go a different way, disconnected from my own self. So your first step is to stop. Find something which stops yourself. 
either be that meditation, be that yoga, be that good friends and a good cup of glass of wine or gin tonic. I'm a lot of gin tonic or coffee. I don't care. But find something which stops you in your tracks. And if you found that, and hopefully it's not uh, too much alcohol, more something like meditation or any kind of ritual you have, embrace that and learn to stop yourself, to calm yourself down. So that's the first step. Anything helps with that. There are inspirational podcasts, but I'm a big sucker for meditation. I'm just that. If you have learned to stop yourself, go into the habit of um, doing, I give you one of my most beloved exercises. And it's a very easy exercise. What you need is pen and paper and let's say 20 minutes. And then you write on that pen and paper a date six months in the future or just for easier things. We start ours with the 21st December 2019. So end of the year, breaking into the new year. And then think about kind of we two would meet up and you will tell me I have my party hat on my glass of champagne in my other hand and will look at you. Tell me, what was your year? Tell me the good stuff, what happened in your year. And that's what you do. You write down today from the perspective as it has already happened in your last six months or year or whatever, whenever you will hear that podcast, try that exercise. Because what will happen, you will write down, 2019 was the freaking, start with that sentence, 2019, was the freaking best year of my life. You will not believe what happened and just write down what should have happened. What do you do with these exercises? Your brain is either your biggest enemy or your biggest friend. And to become it to your biggest friend, you have to understand that it's always stuck on status quo. So if you're in status quo, your brain thinks that's safe. And then it's a hard working process to get you stopped, but your brain still thinks it's safe there where we are but you want to go on. But with this exercise, where you kind of a forward backlog, kind of your review, a forward review, your brain, write it down, really, with hand, pen and paper, write it down. As soon as you've wrote, written it down, read it again and again. And your brain thinks, damn it, wh why don't we have that relationship, that fun, that dog, that children, that success? And it will get you there because then the space of possibility opens up, which were already there, but you didn't see them because your brain was in status quo land and was stuck in that. So do that. That's a very neat exercise. You can do it on a short level for just 10 or 14 days, but you can also do it for six months or a whole year. But it's always about stopping and then finding stuff which is encouraging you to move on. So getting out of your status quo. That can be a good book. Yes, I love good books and I like Reading stuff like my most beloved one is literally Hansen and graded work because it's more like how to be really successful. And it's not about putting in endless hours of work, but being really productive on a good level or reading a good kind of a, whatever calms you in a kind of space. I'm a sucker for everything. Philosophy. I have Ukraine, Russian heritage. So of course I love the big Russian stuff from Dostoevsky to Bulgakov. I'm a good book is always happening. And I think the third point is always try to find your tribe because like the one thing, it will not help you if you're just always with yourself alone. It's a step. You start with yourself alone. You decide on where you want to go and then search for the tribe out there. And that can be listening to podcasts. That can be following people on social media that have kind of a feeling of connection and reach out to that people. Reach out to that people you're following on social media. 
And that's kind of incredible what will happen there. Join some meetups, go to people, go on. Um, I know Kat has quite a good thing on books going on. So always watch out for her, what she's posting on that kind of regard. And that's where you can get your life where you really wanted to have it. And then it's your life. It's your definition of success. It's your definition of happiness. It's your life. It's your definition of life. I think that's, I love the advice and I love that you made it so actionable. So Rebel, that you're listening, I think you've got your task for right after this episode to grab that piece of paper. And I'll, of course, include all the links to what Barbara mentioned and recommended. And of course, to Barbara herself, because as she said, you should follow people that inspire. And Barbara is definitely one of them. Thank you so much, Barbara, for the amazing conversation and all the advice and for being such a great example of how happy and fulfilling it can be when you really put yourself in what you want to do and how you want to do it first. Thank you so very much. It was a pleasure. And I hope to see um, some of your loving, great listeners in any kind of thing I do and see them around and is writing. I hear the podcast now. I'm following you. I love that stuff. <laughs> I hope so too. Thanks so much, Barbara. You're very welcome. Thank you. You can find all the resources mentioned to unleash your inner rebel in the show notes. And the fun doesn't stop there. The Leading Rebels tribe is full of badass women. Become a part of the community to connect with them. Join us on Instagram and Facebook. All links also in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in.